Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The Road Less Traveled begins with a one-sentence paragraph which reads, Life is difficult. Boy, that's true, isn't it? From our entrance into life until our exit from it, life is nothing more but than pressure and problems and troubles and trials and setbacks and sufferings. I think all of us experience those kind of things and we just yearn to say, how do we escape that kind of uh, life? I suspect that there are people young in the faith who think that Christians are somehow exempt from suffering. But those of us who've known the Lord for a long time, older Christians who've walked with Him for some time, are well aware that just being a Christian does not exempt you from suffering. Yea, it enrolls you in a school of suffering. I do not think that it's too much to say that being a Christian can actually add suffering to your life. For example, the Bible says that they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Make no mistake about it. If you begin to seriously walk with Jesus Christ, there will be suffering. Suffering like perhaps you didn't have before you became a Christian. In one of his epistles, Paul just enumerates all of the sufferings that he experienced simply because he was a servant of Jesus Christ. The very process of being conformed to Christ involves suffering. It involves things like rejection, betrayal, denial, desertion. And those are the very kinds of things that happen to him. And when we are conformed to him, Those are the kinds of things that happen to us. And I think that being the case, you're tempted to say, (laughs) why be a saint? I mean, life is tough enough. But if being a Christian means that you are going to experience more suffering, why, pray tell, would you want to be a Christian? Why would you want to be a saint? The biblical answer to that is in Romans chapter 8. We've been studying the book of Romans paragraph by paragraph and verse by verse. And we concluded last time by looking at Romans chapter 8 verse 17, where the Apostle Paul said that if we suffered with him, we would be glorified together with him. In that statement is the answer to the question that I just posed. As a matter of fact, Paul picks up at the very next verse 
and begins to explain. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The answer to the question, very simply put, is that we relish being saints, knowing full well that that involves suffering, because we're also aware there is a glory to follow. Verse 17 says it. If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together with him. Verse 18 amplifies it, making the statement, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall follow. We do not mind being saints now because we know there is glory to follow. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he talks about our light affliction which is but for a moment that is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But the Christian understands what the suffering saint really knows is that the suffering is in itself going to produce glory. It's going to produce an eternal weight of glory. And as compared to what we have got in the future, then anything we go through now is but light affliction. So I want to speak tonight very simply about the agony and the ecstasy. The reality that there is suffering, but the anticipation that there is glory. The full realization that there is agony now with the anticipation that there is ecstasy later. Paul states that theme in Romans 8.18. And then from that point down through verse 30, he fully develops it. So let's go to Romans chapter 8 and pick up at verse 19, where he begins to develop the subject. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for that we do not see, then we eagerly await for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. 
because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's a sense in which this is a long, full passage of Scripture. There's another sense in which what is said here is incredibly simple. These verses can be divided very simply into two parts. In verses 19 through 27, Paul is talking about our groaning for glory. In the presence of suffering, we groan. But as believers, we groan anticipating glory. So those first verses, which is most of the passage, talk about our groanings for glory. Then, beginning in verse 28 and going down through verse 30, he gives us the guarantee that we have that we are going to arrive at glory. We groan for this glory now that we are guaranteed to receive later. So why be a saint? Why go through all of these sufferings? Why groan? And the answer is a glory that we're assured of. We're guaranteed to get later. That basically is the sum of all I'm going to say. But let's look at it in detail. First, I want to talk about these groanings for glory. When I say groanings, plural, I mean that not only do we groan, but others groan as well. Look at your Bibles carefully for a second. In verses 19 to 27, he talks about three different things or people groaning. For example, look at verse 22. The whole creation groans. I drop down to verse 23. In the middle of the verse, it says, even we ourselves groan. Now look at the end of verse 26. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Notice carefully. The creation groans. We as Christians groan. And the Spirit of God Himself groans within us. So we're going to look then at three groanings for glory. First is the creation. He says in verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, he says, is poised, eagerly, earnestly, expecting the revelation of the sons of God. The revelation of the sons of God is the glory. John tells us in his little epistle, we are now the sons of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when he comes, then we shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. You're a child of God. But what you are has not yet fully been revealed. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're all going to be revealed. 
the full splendor, the full glory of our adoption into the family of God is going to be revealed. In the meantime, the creation groans. Verse 19 says, there is earnest expectation. That phrase in Greek means the stretching of the neck to look at something. Creation is stretching its neck to see the second coming of Jesus Christ and the full revelation of the sons of God. Creation is groaning now for that glory that shall be in the future. Now that needs some explanation and expansion. And so Paul says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now all he's saying in these two verses is simply this. Creation was subjected to futility. The word means empty, vanity. And of course, this is a reference to the curse pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. Creation didn't do that willingly. That is, creation didn't choose to be plunged into sin and what he calls in verse 21, the bondage of corruption. It was man who sinned. God allowed that, Paul says, verse 20. Because of him who subjected it in hope, God allowed creation to be subjected to futility, to this emptiness, to this vanity, because God had expectation that one day the creation would be redeemed. And so it tells us, this hope, verse 21, is that the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The whole point, very simply, is that creation itself groans, agonizes, eagerly anticipates the revelation of the children of God because creation senses that it too is in the bondage of decay and death and destruction. That when the children of God are revealed to be what they really are, then creation will be redeemed as well. So all of the created world groans for that glory and that release that it will experience at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He concludes in verse 22 saying, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pain together until now. He is simply summing up what he began in verse 19. The point of verses 19 through 22 is stated clearly in verse 22. For we know the whole creation groans. Only now he adds another figure and says, the creation groans like a woman in labor with birth pangs until now. You've seen a woman about to give birth to her baby. She is in agony. That agony produces the glory of a newborn. Someone has eloquently said that the creation, the womb of the creation, groans in travail to give birth to a new universe. So Paul is simply saying, 
when we suffer, we groan, we agonize, we feel the pain. But that's only like the creation. All of creation groans in travail, wanting us to be revealed at the second coming of Christ because creation will be redeemed as well. Ever listen to the groan of creation? closest thing I know to describe it is the sighing of the wind. Ever heard that expression? Is the wind sighing? Are the clouds crying? Is the earth shaking? Are the winds creating tornadoes just out of the agony and the groaning of wanting to be released from what Paul calls in this passage the bondage of corruption? I mean, just look around. Creation is dying. We're adding to the process by polluting the environment. But it's all dying. There is death and destruction and decay all around us in creation. And it groans and yearns for that glory when the sons of God are going to be revealed and creation is going to be released from its bondage. So the point Paul is making is that creation groans for this coming glory. But now in verses 23 and 24, he talks about the fact that Christians groan for this coming glory. He says, and not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, or why does one still hope for what he sees? Very simple. These verses are saying, Christians groan for the coming glory. There's a little bit of a technical point that might interest you. In verse 23, it talks about the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a little bit of a cumbersome uh, phrase to interpret because the first fruits of the Spirit can either be the first fruit being the Spirit Himself who was given to us, or it can be the first fruit of the Spirit's work in us. So is the first fruit of the Spirit the Spirit or the work of the Spirit? Well, as you can imagine, scholars debate about that. I'm going to opt for the second possibility, mainly because he goes on to say, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Uh, that the first fruit was that first work of the Holy Spirit given to us. And that ultimate work of the Holy Spirit was the redemption of our bodies. So this first work of regeneration and perhaps even producing some of the fruit of the Spirit as we walk in the Spirit are the first fruits. And ultimately we're going to have the redemption of our bodies the adoption. He said earlier in this passage in verse 19 that creation waited for the revealing of the sons of God. We are going to be revealed as children of God, as adopted, and our bodies as well as our spirits are going to be redeemed. And we groan, we yearn for that day. At the moment, it's only a hope. Now, that doesn't mean it's uncertain. The Greek word hope means it's an expectation. At the moment, it's an expectation. But you see, the very nature 
of an expectation is that it's not seen, which is what he explained in verse 24. We were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. I don't hope for something I see. I see it. But this is a hope. It is an expectation because I don't see it. I don't see the redemption of my body at the moment. I don't see my full revelation as a child of God. I anticipate that. I expect that. I hope for that. In the meantime, as we suffer, we groan. I think there may be a sense in which in this passage, Paul has been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. You will recall that earlier in the chapter, he talked about us walking in the Spirit. He talked about being spiritually minded. He's talked about being led by the Spirit. Those are the works, the first fruits of the Spirit of God in our lives. And as we begin to walk in the Spirit in dependence upon Him, as He begins to work in our lives and conform us to Christ, it's then that we earnestly yearn for His full work, namely the redemption of our body. He's given us that first work, and it makes us groan and yearn for more. I was uh, once in a home. They were serving dessert. Somebody said, how do you like this ice cream? And I said, it tastes like more. It tasted so good. I want some more. The work of the Spirit of God in my life makes me yearn for more. And in the midst of the suffering and the pressure, it just makes you want to groan for more. So Paul says, we along with creation yearn, we groan for that glory that we know is coming. There's one other groaning in this passage. In verses 26 and 27, he talks about the groaning of the Spirit of God. Let's pick up at verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. As I said a moment ago, there are three groanings in this passage. The groaning of creation, the groaning of the Christian, and now the groaning of the Spirit of God. He says... Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. What are the weaknesses? Well, that's another debated point in this passage. Some have said this was physical weaknesses, that we're all weak and sickly physically. Others have tried to say it was moral weakness. But the third suggestion, and one I think has the most merit, is that the weakness here is our ignorance. Look at verse 26. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. Notice the next statement. For. And remember I have told you before and will tell you again that anytime you see a sentence in the New Testament that begins with for, he's about to explain or give a reason for what he has just said. So he has just said, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. 
And now he is going to explain because we don't know how to pray as we ought. So I take it that the weakness in the first part of verse 26 is the ignorance in the last part of verse 26. We do not know how to pray as we ought. So, the Spirit of God makes intercession with us or for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now that happens to be a rather interesting little statement. Our charismatic friends would say to us that this is a reference to speaking in tongues, that the Holy Spirit groans within us, speaking in tongues through us, and that that is the meaning of the latter part of verse 26, with groanings which cannot be uttered. I think they couldn't possibly be more wrong. The little phrase, cannot be uttered, means just that. It is unspoken. It is unexpressed. It cannot be uttered. It can't be uttered. You get it? So to say that this is tongues is the exact opposite of what the text means. The whole point is that the Spirit of God within us knows what to pray for and prays, but it's unexpressed to us. As he goes on to explain in verse 27, now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. All that is saying is, you don't know. It's unuttered to you. It's not uttered. But God knows because, as he explains in verse 27, God searches the hearts, a statement repeatedly made throughout Scripture, meaning God is omniscient, and he knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit is God and God knows the mind of the Spirit. And furthermore, you can be assured he's making the right intercession for you because he knows what the will of God is and he prays according to to the will of God. So, this passage is teaching that we groan, creation groans, and the Spirit of God groans. We don't know what we pray to pray for. We're ignorant. But the Spirit of God prays for us. Someone has written, He prayed for strength that he might achieve. He was made weak that he might obey. He prayed for health that he might do great things. He was given infirmity that he might do better things. He prayed for riches that he might be happy. He was given poverty that he might be wise. He prayed for power that he might have the praise of men. He was given weakness that he might feel the need of God. He received nothing that he asked for, yet much more than all for which he had fondly hoped. His prayer was answered he was most blessed. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit of God does. and He prays for us. I heard a story once of two men who planted a vineyard. Both planted olive trees. One man prayed, God, my plants need rain. Send rain. And it rained. He then prayed, God, send rain sunshine, and the sun shone upon his plant. 
He then said they need to be tough. Send frost. And God sent frost, and his plants died. Another man who planted his crop at the same time ended up with a luscious field. And the first man said to the second, what did you do that I didn't do? How did you pray? And the second man said, Lord, I don't know what these plants need. You just do whatever is best for them. I submit to you, we don't have the sense to know always what to ask for. That we dictate to God the means. And what we ought to do is leave the ends and the means up to God and say, Lord, you know what's best. Do it. And that when we do that, we get his best. So the Spirit of God groans within us. Now, before we go on to the rest of this passage, there's one little thing I left out. This passage so far has been telling us creation groans, we groan, the Spirit of God groans within us. Why? Because the context of this passage is suffering. The creation is in the midst of suffering. It's in a bondage of corruption that we are in, the flesh, as Paul explains it in the book of Romans. Consequently, there is suffering. Consequently, there is suffering. And we groan for liberation, for release, for redemption. What do we do in the meantime? Look at verse 25. He says, But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. If you have this hope, even though there are groanings now, but you anticipate the glory, you will persevere. You will endure the agony now for the ecstasy later. And that's Paul's point. There is suffering now, but it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to come. So focusing on the glory that's coming, I endure the agony and the groanings now. Now, having said that, there's one other thing Paul does in this passage. Keep your eye fixed on the glory and be assured it's coming. The rest of this passage is telling us that there is a guarantee of glory. We are guaranteed that we're going to get this glory. Let's begin at verse 28. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This verse is telling us God has a purpose. You must keep your eye on the goal, on the glory that is to come. But the guarantee that you're going to get there if you persevere is that God has a purpose. And that is his point. We know that all things work together for good. Now, there are all kinds of questions that people ask about this verse, like what are the all things? 
things that he's talking about in this passage. Uh, well, I think that in light of the context, he's talking about all the things involved in suffering. The question that's often asked is, is he talking about sin too? The sin work together for good. That question in this passage has been debated since ancient times. Frankly, uh, I think this passage is probably not saying that, and I know that because he says at the end of this verse, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's not just talking about all believers. He's talking about those who love the Lord. It's for them who all things are going to work together for good. So I think primarily he does not have sin in view. Rather, he is saying all the things involved in suffering are going to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So the point of this verse is God has a purpose. And all of the circumstances and events of life are going to work together to produce the good, which he hasn't defined in this verse. He will later. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, one other little point that's very critical. Does Romans 8.28 apply to everybody? Does Romans 8.28 apply to all Christians? And the answer is, no, it doesn't. He clearly says that. All things work together for good to whom? To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Frankly, do all Christians love the Lord? Unfortunately, no. The Lord himself told the church at Ephesus they had lost their first love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That I think the whole thrust of this chapter is talking about Christians who have a heart for the Lord, who are in the process of obeying him. I mean, I mentioned this earlier, but just start at the beginning of the chapter. You've been with us as we've gone through Romans. You know that in chapter 7, Paul was defeated. He isn't just describing a struggle. He's describing a defeat. And in Romans 8, he enters into a walk in the Spirit. Verse 1 and again verse 4 talk about walking in the Spirit. Verse 5 and verse 6 talk about being spiritually minded. Verse 14 talks about being led by the Spirit. Verse 17 talks about suffering with Christ. Verse 23 talks about experiencing the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And verse 25 talks about us enduring. And now verse 28 talks about those who love the Lord. So I think what Paul is teaching in this passage is that if you are really walking in the Spirit, you are going to suffer. And it is as you suffer with Christ that you will reign with Him. And you have the assurance and the promise of God now that all the things that happen are going to work together for good. 
if you love the Lord, if you're enduring, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're responding properly. You're called according to His purpose, which He hasn't yet defined. He will in a minute. So, what I'm telling you is, you can be guaranteed of glory because God has a purpose. And I am assuming that you are cooperating with Him. And as you cooperate with the process, then all things work together for good. And before I go on and explain what this purpose is and how it all works, let me just pause long enough to illustrate the fact that it's all going to work together for good. The best illustration of this I ever heard is about a man talking about the fact that his wife made a chocolate cake that he dearly loved. And he wanted to know how she did it, so one day he went into the kitchen to watch her make this chocolate cake. First thing he watched her do was sift some flour. And he looked at that and he thought to himself, that is dry and unappetizing by itself. Then he watched her pour in some sour milk. And he thought, if I had to drink that by itself, it would turn my stomach. And then she cracked open and poured into the whole mess a raw egg. That wasn't particularly appetizing either. And then she stuck this whole contraption in an oven. And he said he left the kitchen not sure he ever wanted to eat a chocolate cake again. But at dinner that night, she served it, and it was del as delicious as ever. His conclusion was that the Christian who's walking with the Lord goes through dry stretches like dry, shifted flour. That sometimes there is the unappetizing experience in life of sour milk. And there's sometimes a raw deal, like a raw egg. And it gets all put into the furnace of affliction. And all of that works together for good to make a delicious chocolate cake. God is in control. And God will see to it that all things work together for good because God has a purpose. Now the question is, what is the purpose? Well, the rest of this paragraph explains what the purpose is. As a matter of fact, the rest of this paragraph gives us a five-step development of God's purpose. Look at verse 29. Four. Whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, those he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, those he also glorified. Let me spell out the five steps. They're real simple. Verse 29, first he foreknew. Secondly, he predestinated. Thirdly, he called. Fourthly, he justified. Fifthly, he glorified. Let's just survey those real quickly. First of all, God foreknew us. Now, that's a great theological debate if you ever heard one. 
Some say that God foreknew that you would believe and he chose you because he knew you were going to believe. And as a matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 1 says that very thing. The problem with that view is that the New Testament never tells us what it was that God foreknew. The New Testament never says that what he foreknew is that you would believe. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 9, as we shall see shortly, he says it's not of him that willeth. So that whole thing is ruled out. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he chose us based on the good pleasure of his own will. So what he foreknew was the good pleasure of his own will. At any rate, he foreknew us. Secondly, he predestinated us. He predestinated us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He foreknew us and he predestinated us and his ultimate purpose was to make us like Jesus Christ. This is a very interesting concept. How are we going to become like Jesus Christ? I think we become like Jesus Christ in that we, like Jesus Christ, suffer. That's the subject of the whole paragraph. God's will for Jesus Christ was that he suffer, and we suffer. We're conformed to him. I think we're also like Christ in that Christ-likeness is developed in us. I think the best explanation of Christ-likeness in the New Testament is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. I think we're also conformed to the image of Christ and that we will be glorified with Him. Now let me give you a thought to ponder. Will we all end up just like Jesus Christ to the same degree? I think we all automatically assume that, don't we? Are we all being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in this life to the same degree? No, we're not. Are all Christians like Christ by the time they die? To ask the question is to chuckle, isn't it? No, we're not. I would like to suggest the possibility that we're not all like Jesus Christ here, and we're all not going to be like Jesus Christ to the same degree in glory. I keep coming back to the fact that this chapter is talking about walking in the Spirit. This part of the chapter is talking about suffering. And some Christians go through more suffering than others, and they come out more conformed to the image of Christ than others. Just like... Parents have multiple children, and some end up more like them than the others. So I think he is saying that God's purpose is that we're all going to be conformed to Christ. And that's going to be true to some degree, as he will go on to explain. We're all going to be glorified to some degree. But I think there is also the idea in this passage that some of us are going to be more conformed to Christ than others, and some of us are going to share more glory than others. As we suffer, we will rule. At any rate, he goes on to explain the 
purpose of God. It is primarily to conform us to Christ, and he uses suffering to do that. And he says in verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestinated, then he called. And of course, he did that through the gospel. Then he justified. That is a great theme of the early chapters of the book of Romans, which means he declared us righteous. And then he glorifies us. He's going to use this process to conform us to Christ, and ultimately he's going to glorify us. We're going to be revealed as the sons of God. Notice what's left out. There's no guarantee that you're going to be sanctified. Just thought I'd say that in passing. He says God's purpose was to call us and justify us. He will glorify us. But there's no guarantee in this passage you're going to be sanctified. For that to happen, you've got to do what this chapter is talking about. You've got to walk in the Spirit. What I think these verses are telling us is simply this. It is simply saying that the purpose of God is to conform us to Christ and ultimately to glorify us. And he starts out saying, that's going to take suffering. That's guaranteed because God foreknew his program and purpose and he predestinated it to be and it will be. As a matter of fact, verse 30 says, these he also glorified. You see that? That's in the past tense. In the Greek text, it's in the aorist tense. He glorified, past tense. But we haven't been glorified yet. That isn't going to happen until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it is so certain that it is going to happen that God can state it in the past tense as if it's already happened. It is guaranteed. So, we are going to be conformed to Christ. I think all Christians are going to be conformed to Christ and glorified to some degree. We're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. We're going to have a body like his glorious body. I just think it's also possible. And I just want to say it in passing, that some are going to end up more like Christ than others because they more endured and responded to the process. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once wrote to his friend Andrew Bonner, and he asked for his picture and his autograph. And Bonner wrote back and said, I will do as you have requested, but if you would be willing to wait for a short season, you would have a better likeness, for I shall be like him. I shall soon see him as he is. We're all going to be like him to some degree, and I suspect others will be more like him than some of us. All right, let me sum up this passage and make a couple of very practical suggestions. I think this passage is saying that believers who suffer groan along with creation and the Holy Spirit for that future glory that is guaranteed because of God's eternal purpose is to conform us to Jesus Christ. Now, let me make just two very simple, practical suggestions. Number one, suffering is a reality. 
I want to say that, and I want to say it very simply and very clearly. If you're not a Christian, there is suffering in life. If you are a Christian, there is suffering in life. If you are a Christian walking with Jesus Christ, there is suffering in life. Suffering is a fact of life. And the quicker you understand that, and the quicker you come to grips with that, the better off you are going to be. I began by talking about Scott Peck and his book, The Road Less Traveled. He begins the book with the simple, single sentence, Life is difficult. He then goes on to say, and I quote, This is a great truth, one of the greatest. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. This passage begins with suffering. And you need to come to grips with that issue. Life is full of suffering. You need to accept that. But this passage goes way beyond all of that. This passage tells us that there is not only suffering now, but there is glory later. And I am suggesting that the degree of that glory is determined by how you respond to your suffering now. You see, what I am suggesting is that all of us suffer, but all of us do not respond to that suffering. You can suffer and get angry and bitter. You will not be conformed to the image of his son. Or you can suffer, and you can do what verse 25 says. You can endure. You can do what verse 28 says. You can love him and obey him. And as you do, then you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ now. And you will reign with him later. The passage starts out, verse 17, if we suffer with him, we may be glorified together. And the passage ends in verse 30, whom he calls, he justifies, and whom he justifies, he glorifies. How much glory you get later is going to be determined by how you handle the suffering now. How well you are conformed to the image of Christ now is going to be determined by how you respond to the suffering now. But the truth with which I want to leave you is there is a crown now. I mean, cross now. There is uh, there's a crown later. There are groanings now. There is glory later. There are hurts now. There are hallelujahs later. There's agony now. 
there's ecstasy later. It's guaranteed. The more you respond, the better it'll be. In other words, Jesus Christ is no security against the sufferings and the storms of life. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ is no guarantee against the storms and the sufferings of life. However, he is a perfect security in them. He does not promise an easy passage. What he does guarantee is a safe landing. So there's agony, but there's ecstasy. If you respond properly, there is ecstasy, there is glory, there is conformity to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon has said it better than I can say it. With insight, he said, the egg is white enough, though the hen be black as cold. Out of evil comes blessing, though the great goodness of God. From threatening clouds, we get refreshing showers. In dark minds are found bright jewels. And so from our worst troubles come our best blessings. The bitter cold sweetens the ground, and the rough winds fasten the roots of the old oak. When our heart is right with God, everything is right. We're all at school, and our great teacher, spelled with a capital T, writes many a bright lesson on the blackboard of affliction. Hear me, please, hear me well. There's agony now, and we groan. But we groan for the glory that is to come. And the suffering now is not worthy to be compared with that great glory that is to come. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Our Father, there are many times when we face life and we don't understand why things happen while you permit events that we can't comprehend. We come to passages like this and it gives us a glimpse, a flash of insight that you do know what you're doing. You do have a purpose. I pray that the Spirit of God will enforce that, reinforce that in our minds so that we will learn to respond properly to you, to trust you, to obey you, to endure the walk in the Spirit. Learn to groan for the glory that is to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.